You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where he lectures on blockchain and crypto. A nine-year veteran of the crypto industry, he spends most of his time as a consultant, educator, and advocate for this new way of building trust. Sometimes called the explainer-in-chief of blockchain technology, his latest book is titled Re-Architecturing Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Omid Medlakin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your experience in the world of crypto and blockchain. So uh, first, thank you for having me. I have been in the crypto industry for close to nine years now, initially just as a hobbyist and someone who was curious about uh, this very different kind of financial system. Um, But I worked in the space professionally for the last five years. I published my first book back in 2018. Um, Since then, I've worked as a consultant to companies large and small who are trying to understand the technology and possibly build a strategy around it. I've been teaching crypto at Columbia Business School for the last three years. Um, And I'm very excited excited to get uh, this new book, Rearchitecting Trust Out, because this is my attempt at sort of capturing the macro thesis for why I think this technology is going to be transformative. If you are a professional looking at the European startup scene, Germany is a place you cannot miss. Fortunately for you, there is StartupRad.io, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to StartupRad.io podcast or check for the StartupRad.io internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the StartupRad.io skill as well. So before we get into discussing your latest book, I wanted to spend some time getting a deeper understanding of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology and clearing up any misunderstandings that our audience may have. So despite crypto and especially Bitcoin gaining widespread popularity over the past few years, many still lack a basic understanding of what cryptocurrencies are, how they operate, and what gives them value. So can you start by giving us a quick overview of the basics? Sure. Uh, First, I'll say that uh, if you're confused about this topic, then welcome to this club. I always start the teaching semester by joking with my students that I've been confused about blockchain for nine years, so they don't have to be. The reason why this is confusing is because one, the technology is not the natural evolution of any one field. What I mean is, uh, you know, you can say like the smartphone is the natural evolution of telephony. Blockchain is actually an amalgamation of a bunch of different fields of study that are not necessarily related, including distributed systems, cryptography, game theory, economics, Uh, So there's sort of this mishmash that was thrown together initially to create Bitcoin. Um, And most people often ask, like, you know, what is Bitcoin? There is this debate about the semantics. Is it money? Does it qualify at money? Um, To me, the more interesting 
question and then answer is actually Bitcoin is a digitally native payment system that has its own currency. And the reason why that's important is that payment systems or generally like financial systems for moving around value um, are a big part of our lives already. And they always have been. They go back arguably centuries. Everything from how we send money using credit cards or how what is the process under the hood that if you want to buy a stock, um, you become a shareholder and then whoever sold you those shares gets paid. Um, so this is the core part of the financial system, which enables all sorts of other economic activity. And all of our existing payment systems up to the invention of Bitcoin have a certain architecture. And the one thing they have in common is that they rely on these intermediaries uh, who are either governments like a central bank or corporations, highly regulated corporations like a commercial bank or a stock exchange. They rely on these intermediaries to provide trust, which I think is an important accomplishment. There's a tendency within crypto where people will actually like dismiss what banks do or even what a central bank does. Uh, and, and in the context of providing trust for things like a simple payment from one person to another, um, they are important. However, they have their drawbacks. And what's special about Bitcoin originally was that the challenge of the creator, whoever he, she, or they was set for themselves was, can I create a new kind of payment system or financial system? Because the world has changed, right? This was 2008. We now have computers. We have the internet. Most people are connected to other people digitally one way or another. And the answer as far as Bitcoin was concerned is yes. And there's something actually remarkable about the fact that the system or the network or the blockchain works because literally there's nobody in charge. No, there is no corporation that runs it. There is no government that sets the laws by which it operates. And also anybody can do anything um, and can do so anonymously, which is also remarkable. Usually if you have anything on the internet where people can do things anonymously, it quickly devolves into this sort of like cesspool of the worst kinds of human behavior. Bitcoin features all of these attributes, and yet it has been remarkably effective. And I'm not talking about you know, the price, you know, what the price of Bitcoin is, whether it's a good investment or not. That's a separate conversation. But the fact that you do have this uh, primitive but new kind of financial system where trust comes from a combination of technology and code and financial incentives. So it's really a trust-building tool, and it's one that's now operated nonstop around the clock in ways that banks and governments usually do not. It's been global in way that in ways that banks and governments are usually are not. Uh, and it's been going on and handled billions of dollars worth of payments for over a decade. And it has never been down once, never processed a bad transaction and never been breached. So that's like the quick one-on-one of what Bitcoin combined with the underlying technology blockchain create. And what's happened in the last five or six years is that clever people have asked this question of, well, what else can we do with this idea? Can we build a different kind of banking system that does more than let one person pay another? What if it lets them borrow money from each other uh, or you know, trade futures contracts? Can we handle fiat currency on the blockchain? Can we do more esoteric things like issue digital collectibles and create new business models for artists and creators? 
The answer to all of that is probably, but it's still early days. And there's a lot of experimentation that needs to be done before these clever people figure out what models actually work and make a difference. Okay, so any mention of cryptocurrencies recently has been shrouded in a lot more skepticism after the recent collapse that saw Bitcoin and Ethereum prices fall about 70% from their November high, which served as something of an I told you so for the skeptics to argue that crypto um, more than was um, nothing more than speculative gambling. Um, so in response to this, just yesterday, you had a piece in the Harvard Business Review discussing how this argument misses an important insight um, about how crypto assets differ from those in traditional finance. So can you tell us a bit about the argument that you made regarding what people get wrong about volatility? Yeah, what, what people get wrong is that because of the efficiency of blockchain infrastructure, if we just think of these public networks as financial infrastructure that is just built for the digital age in a way that almost nothing that we use today is. Like Even if the New York Stock Exchange might look digital and modern, if you peek under the hood and certainly how the settlement of trades happens after the fact, the architecture has not really changed in 50 years. It's still very analog, very manual, um, very inefficient. Blockchain is ultra modern. And one of the things it enables is that if you have an asset, which could be any kind of asset, it could even be like, think of startup equity in the way that every business could be a fintech, could be a restaurant has equity. With blockchain, it starts trading right away. Uh, in fact, there are projects where the, the coin or the token, whatever we want to call it, starts trading before the product or service that the team is building is even available. And this inevitably leads to volatility because the younger a startup is, any startup, the more uncertain its future is. So the more investors are going to respond to news flow, positive and negative, by driving the price all the way up or all the way down. And the analogy I give in the uh, article is that imagine a restaurant were to issue tradable shares before it even opens its doors. Those shares would probably be as volatile as crypto is, not for any bad reason, but because if that restaurant gets a liquor license, then it's certainly a lot more likely to survive. So the shares are going to soar. Alternatively, if a local paper gives it a bad review, that could really hurt its chances. So those shares might tank. So the liquidity and price discovery and transparency of crypto, which leads to all this volatility, to me is actually a benefit. Uh, and as evidence of that, the, a lot of traditional exchanges and Wall Street firms are actually exploring how they can do things like issue stocks or bonds on the blockchain. Okay, um, so in the piece, you make the following comparison. Um, if your cousin's new restaurant had tradable shares, they'd probably be as volatile as crypto. Landing a liquor license might make them quadruple, while a bad review might make them tank. Given the uncertainty, um, external developments would also have an amplified impact. A new restaurant is more vulnerable to things like dining fads or bad weather than an established one. So an argument people like Dave Ramsey have made in response to this sort of thing is that the value of something like your cousin's restaurant is based on providing a tangible good to society. They have land, capital, their proprietary recipes, and so on that give the business value as opposed to something like Bitcoin, which have value only because people believe it has value. So Warren Buffett famously said, cryptocurrencies have no value. They don't produce anything. What you hope is that somebody comes along and pays you more money later on, but then that person's got the problem. In terms of value, zero. So how would you respond? I have a hard time when people try to project 
um, these kind of sort of moral value assessments on financial value, because at the end of the day, this is something that to me, the market will decide. And a lot of the arguments people make about like, oh, well, Bitcoin, people only buy it because they think someone will pay more for it later. Well, yeah, that's also why people buy stocks, bonds, currencies, gold, um, investing, real estate, et cetera. So the question isn't, does any crypto project serve some kind of a clear utility beyond speculation today? The question is, can any crypto crypto project mature to the point where it does that? And I think um, for Bitcoin, for example, specifically, when people say, well, what purpose can it serve down the road? Uh, to me, some very important purposes, because to me, Bitcoin is algorithmically minted money that is censorship resistant by design. That's a fancy way of saying Instead of a committee or a central bank determining how much of it is printed, a pre-programmed algorithm decides how much new Bitcoin is created. And literally, Bitcoin is the only financial product or payment system that anybody on the planet could access. It's just designed that way, as opposed to, say, Venmo in your bank account that is actually designed to exclude all sorts of people. So to me, for Bitcoin, that is important utility, and it is important utility that goes beyond speculation. Other kinds of crypto assets have different kinds of utility that we can get into. Okay, so your latest book is titled Rearchitecturing Trust, um, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. So what led you to write this book? I decided to write the book actually because writing is how I hash out my own thinking. And I, I have had this hunch for years now that this technology solves a lot of the problems that we have today, particularly problems caused by digitization. And um, because there is so much skepticism, like the kind that you alluded to when it comes to crypto, and to be fair, there's enough about crypto that people have good reason to be skeptical of, right? Like that there is a lot of volatility. There are unfortunately um, enough scams and just really poorly designed projects where investors get burned on. It is complicated and confusing. So what I wanted to do was to put the utility of crypto in sort of a historical perspective and to do so through the framework of trust, because so much of what, what matters and what is important to society, like a currency or a banking system, or even a social media platform, revolves around trust. And the case I tried to make in the book is that there's a lot of evidence, whether it's inflation or banks needing bailouts or the um, crazy amount of bots and fake activity on Twitter, all of that to me is evidence that trust is fading in our existing solutions which I then used as a setup to argue as to why some of the unique features of crypto could be used to rebuild and reestablish trust. Okay. Um, so was there anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect? A couple. Um, in the book, I start by talking about money because money is arguably the most important trust framework in society. In fact, like if you sit down and think about it, all money is is a completely fictional thing that human beings invented so they could better trust each other in converse. And when I was doing uh, the research for money, I learned that money has such a rich and varied and interesting history. Uh, depending on which 
sort of side of the coin, forgive the pun, that you're on, right? Like today we have people who argue that the best money is what we have today, which is money that is issued and managed by a central bank and is backed by nothing other than a promise. Uh, there are also people who actually think that's the worst kind of money. And when we had money that was backed by gold or was gold, then that was better money. Uh, and I was surprised to learn in the research that there's such a rich history to it. And mid societies going back millennia have always gone back and forth experimenting with different kinds of money. Um, so that was a very interesting lesson. Um, then when I was researching the parts of the book where I talk about technology platforms like Twitter or YouTube or Uber, um, I learned that many of them have sort of become compromised in recent years because of the fact that they are platforms where ultimately people who are not the company make them valuable. Meaning what makes Uber valuable is the fact that there are Uber drivers. What makes YouTube valuable is the fact that there are um, people putting interesting content on YouTube. And from an economic point of view, there is a bad incentive model or conflict of interest between the companies themselves and those who make them valuable, which means in the long run, management has to turn on their own users. And we've seen this already um, with some of like the shady stuff that goes on in social media or the fact that Uber is going to have to eventually screw its drivers to turn a profit. Um, so I was surprised to learn that many of these companies started out really intending to serve their users. You know, like we all remember Google's motto used to be, don't be evil. And um, fascinating thing I discovered, if you go back and read the original paper that the Google founders, when there were still PhD students published about how they would build a search engine, it has a whole section on how advertising is a bad business model for a search engine because it compromises how the search results are shown. And here we are today, and Google is the world's biggest advertising company. Okay. Um, I just wanted to circle back around to something you said um, a couple minutes ago um, when we were talking about the value that cryptocurrencies provide. Um, so you said that um, in, in response to the sort of, it only has um, value because you hope that somebody comes along and pays you more money later on. And you you made the comparison that, well, um, that's the, the same thing goes for, you know, businesses or stocks or real estate or whatever. Um, but I think the the one thing that people like Buffett or, or Dave Ramsey um, are, are pointing out, um, which is why this they say that this comparison doesn't work is that um, with restaurants or stocks or companies or, um, you know, conventional companies, they're providing tangible good um, or a tangible service. Right. And so you can see, um, you know, how a restaurant would mature because it has the land, it has the, the, the labor, the, the capital, everything. Um, whereas with cryptocurrency, there's really no tangible good. There's no tangible service. There's, there's nothing, there's no uh, capital, there's no assets. There's, there's really none of that. Um, and so that's why, um, you know, that, that comparison in, as so many have argued, doesn't work. So, um, I mean, what, what, what is it inherently like, how, how would a, a cryptocurrency mature? What, what would that look like? Um, given that it doesn't really provide any, any good or service. So with Bitcoin specifically, I think it does provide a service, which is the fact that it is a, a political digital way to store and transfer value. I think this is a useful service because what we're seeing, well, what's always been true in the developing world, and it's starting to become unfortunately true in the developed world, is that 
financial services are increasingly being weaponized. Uh, they're being weaponized for things like foreign policy, like just if we look at what the U.S. does uh, with its sanctions regime. Um, in many developing countries, there are a tool of corruption and that those in power use access to the financial system in order to keep oppressed people down. Bitcoin is technologically designed where none of these things are possible. And I think that's actually a very valuable service. I think it's ultimately valuable to marginalize people in oppressive countries. Uh, I think it's valuable as a, a reserve asset for countries that are trying to escape the U.S.'s increasing weaponization of the SWIFT-based banking system for fallen policy ends. Um, I think it's just an something that empowers individuals. And usually the I, response to that is like, oh, but it's going to be used by criminals and it's going to be used by Russia to evade sanctions. But that's actually the exception, right? The vast majority of people who lack access to basic financial services, like the ability to save money or send some back home, they're not criminals. They're decent people. And I think Bitcoin will give them eventually something that has never existed before. Because um, the other way to think about Bitcoin is it's not just a currency. Bitcoin is a currency that comes with a built-in legal system, right? Meaning in traditional financial services, if I want to use the euro, then there is a whole host of laws and regulations that impact European banking that ostensibly protect the integrity of the euro. And if you go into many developing countries, there is no good legal system, which is part of the reason that their currencies are always hyperinflating away. Bitcoin is fascinating because the code and the technology provide certain guarantees that you would get from a trustworthy legal system. So that to me is the valuable quote unquote service that Bitcoin provides. If we get into some of the other blockchain platforms like Ethereum, Ethereum is just a global computing platform that is again, apolitical, not censorable and accessible to uh, you know, the richest person in the richest country to poor people in the developing world. And I think having a platform like that will enable all sorts of interesting innovations where useful products and services, right? Could be payments, but it could also be social media. It could be rewards. It could be tracking deeds to real estate, right? Like we take this for granted that in many parts of the world, there is no good infrastructure for determining who owns what. And that's a very valuable service that when you have a programmable platform like Ethereum, it will be very easy for people to build this sort of trust building solution on top of. Okay, um, so there's one more argument um, against crypto that I think often gets overlooked that I wanted to ask you about, and that is the environmental damage that it causes. So cryptocurrencies are responsible for more emissions than many entire countries. And just Bitcoin mining alone has a higher carbon footprint than Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Netflix combined. Um, Bitcoin uses more electricity per transaction than any other method method known to mankind, with just one transaction having a greater carbon footprint than a million Visa transactions. So ultimately, with the colossal environmental damage Bitcoin and crypto are causing, how can we justify keeping using them or keeping them around? So first of all, uh, I would question some of the stats that you shared, um, because the one thing that Bitcoin has going for it that none of the other things you mentioned has going is full transparency. So we can actually measure the 
carbon footprint of Bitcoin mining in a way that we can't easily measure the carbon footprint of people watching Netflix. I, I had not heard that uh, the statistic that it uses more than Apple and Netflix and whatever combined. And a lot of the times when people make those arguments, if you actually go and look into the details, you see that there's not a lot of uh, meat behind them. That said, Bitcoin mining or proof of work mining does require a lot of power. That is not a, a bug. It's actually part of its design of how you achieve trust in a completely decentralized setting where no corporation or government is in charge. But it's a drawback, right? Like in a perfect world, we would be able to do the same thing without the carbon footprint. And in fact, many newer blockchains use a different kind of security framework called proof of stake, where the uh, power consumption is negligible. Ethereum is actually migrating to proof of stake sometime in the coming months. But I think it's a very valid critique of Bitcoin that it does have this outsized carbon footprint. But the right way to think about it is that, first of all, if you notice, everybody who, who's heard about Bitcoin has probably heard this stat that, oh, Bitcoin uses more electricity than a small country. Um, it's a bit misleading because every human activity, when measured in aggregate, uses more electricity than a small country. Um, just to give you a specific stat, the United States uses more electricity for air conditioning than the United K the UK does in total. And I'm pretty sure if we take business travel or people playing video games or going out drinking on a Friday night and said, well, if we add up all of the different environmental impacts that this activity has in aggregate, it's like, oh, wow, that's more than Mexico. So that to me is not a useful measurement stick. It, it's just everything has a cost and you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. So I think with Bitcoin, the question is, given it has this environmental impact, are the benefits that I mentioned earlier in terms of a globally accessible, non-politicized financial system that has its own property rights, is it worth the cost? I obviously believe that it is, but I will concede that this is something intelligent people could disagree about. The good news is Bitcoin mining is increasingly becoming reliant on renewables. And without getting into the details, there are actually benefits in certain kinds of situations with certain kinds of grids to have Bitcoin miners because Bitcoin mining is the rare industrial activity that uses a lot of power, but could be done from anywhere and could be turned on and off instantly if, say, you know, there's a lot of demand for power for other things. And what we're seeing now is uh, things like nuclear power plants partnering with Bitcoin miners because it can help them stabilize their power distribution. Well, finally, to finish off, um, I wanted to ask you something you probably get asked all the time, which is what your advice would be um, to someone looking to get into the crypto game. So given the current situation, if you had, say, $1,000 to trade, what would be your best bet? I mean, are there any any especially interesting projects you've come across recently that you think would, would be promising investments um, or just something else that you think is an, an especially um, good opportunity at the moment? So I'm not an investment advisor and I don't give investment advice. Um, what I would encourage everybody to do is learn, uh, but you know, one, they should learn by reading my books, but actually the... The reading is only useful if it's coupled with using. So I think it's always interesting that a lot of the skeptics you meet out there, I ask them, like, have you ever used any of this? Have you ever done a Bitcoin transaction, done something on Ethereum, maybe minted an NFT or something? And the answer is universally no. 
So if someone has $1,000, I don't know how they should invest it, but my advice would be to take a small amount of it, like $100 and play, right? Acquire a tiny amount of Bitcoin and figure out what it takes to send it to a friend. Maybe you'll come to agree with some of the things I said, or maybe you'll realize you're saying, you know what? No, this is too confusing and the user experience is horrible. Um, you know, or like go buy a $5 digital art NFT, support an artist and see if that resonates with you. If nothing else, even if doing this does not change your mind about however you felt pro or con crypto, you will be a lot more informed. And that's always a good thing. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.